Today on Something You Should Know, is your pet really going to get sick if they eat a poinsettia plant or drink the Christmas tree water? Also, how we decide what to buy has changed, and changed for the better. If you were buying, say, a computer in 1999, your assessment probably was influenced by the brand name, by the price, where it was made, all kinds of quality proxies. Those proxies often are very inaccurate. Also today, why it's okay to freeze leftovers once, but not twice. And the amazing odds of living everyday life. Like what are the real odds you'll get hit by lightning? The odds of being struck by lightning are really one in a million or a little bit more than that. And actually, your odds of surviving a lightning strike are one in 1.1 or 90%. And those are the same odds as the household has a Bible, that a person is right-handed. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make low-maintenance bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we had nobody coming into the showroom, so we started doing virtual visits via Microsoft Teams. We're able to see two or threefold the amount of customers we used to be able to see. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. I really think it's going to set a standard for retail moving forward. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, and welcome to the weekend edition of Something You Should Know this week. Now that we're in the holiday season, people will start to decorate and get ready for Christmas. And if you have pets, there are some precautions you need to take. First of all, you've probably heard that poinsettia plants can harm pets if they're eaten. The truth is, though, that a human or an animal would have to eat a lot of those leaves for it to be a problem, and that's not likely because they taste terrible. So that's probably not a big concern. Snow globes. If broken, the glass could obviously be an issue, but so could the liquid inside. It sometimes contains antifreeze, which pets are attracted to and can do them no good. Pine needles are always a concern because if they're ingested, they could pose a puncture hazard to your pet's intestines. The Christmas tree itself can be an issue because if it gets knocked over, all all sorts of bad things could happen. So make sure the Christmas tree is anchored and secure if you've got curious pets. And don't let them drink the tree water. It could contain fertilizer or harbor bacteria. And don't use aspirin in the water. A lot of people put aspirin in Christmas tree water because they think it helps prolong the tree. But it could make that water deadly if your pets drink it. And skip the tinsel. Cats are especially attracted to it, and it can cause major intestinal problems. And that is something you should know. For consumers, there's been a fundamental change in the way we buy products and services. It used to be that we would make a decision to buy based on things like reputation and brand name and our loyalty to that brand, which, when you think about it, isn't really the best way to buy something. But now, because of the Internet, there is so much information about products and services in the form of professional reviews, customer reviews, ratings. So brand loyalty, it just isn't so important anymore. And this is changing the way products and services are marketed to us. 
Here with some fascinating insight into this is Itmar Simonson. He is a professor of marketing in the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, and he's author of the book Absolute Value, What Really Influences Customers in the Age of Nearly Perfect Information. So, Professor, why is this so important, do you think? What, what is it that you're seeing and saying? So what we are saying is that consumers today can uh, evaluate the quality of products, that is the real quality that they will experience when they consume the, the product. That's what we mean by absolute value, as opposed to the value that marketers try to communicate using brand names and advertising and so on. So the mask is off that people can figure out for real what's going on. That is exactly correct. And that's a big change that has happened thanks to the easy access to reviews from experts, from consumers, uh, and, and being able to see so much information about products and demonstrations and so on. I think that completely changes how consumers make buying decisions uh, if they take advantage of the information available to them, and that also changes what marketers uh, of products can do. And it changes it how? Um, Is it just a sense of consumers are now more informed with real information, so that's the basis on which decisions are being made rather than brand loyalty or things like that? Think about if you were buying, say, a computer in 1999, your assessment or or your evaluation of the quality of this computer probably was influenced by the brand name, by the price, by your prior experience with the brand, where it was made, where it was sold, all kinds of quality proxies, not the actual quality of this product. Those proxies, they often are very inaccurate. In other words, you're just relying on other things without having information about the specific product you want to buy. Uh, And what happens now is that consumers have more and more information directly about the the product they want uh, to buy, which I think completely changes the rules for consumers when they make buying decisions, if they take advantage of, of the available information. And it also means that marketers should focus on the real quality of the product instead of relying on all those proxies. But just because consumers have access to this information, I mean, some people say that a lot of that information is bogus, that people put on fake reviews, that, uh, th- that some of that information, although it's there, may not be accurate. No, I, I think that's, uh, th- that, that often comes up. And I should note that if you are looking, say, at a restaurant and you see 10 reviews, yeah, I think you can probably assume that several of those are perhaps friends and relatives, and you probably will not rely on that. However, if you see a, a, a product or a restaurant with, uh, you know, three, 400 reviews, this is something that's really hard to manipulate. Furthermore, if you look at, at uh, websites like Amazon and Yelp, for them, it is critical to take care of this problem that you're raising of fake reviews and fake uh, likes and fake followers and what have you. Because if they cannot control the problem, then their, their customers will not benefit from the reviews. 
And indeed, there are now better and better technologies and methods to get rid of, of those fake reviews. doesn't mean they're going to completely go away. But if you see enough reviews, and you can also look at expert reviews, you have very good information. Uh, but, but for consumers, though, sometimes, I mean, I'll go on Amazon and think about buying this product, and I'll look at the reviews, and there, there may be just as many five-star reviews as there are one-star reviews. And so now, I'm, now I don't know who's right. Well, I think that's the advantage of those reviews. You can look, and, and that's what I often do. I look at those people who didn't like the product, and I want to see what, what caused them to dislike the product. So let's say that I'm thinking of buying some headphones, and I'm looking and see someone who gave it only three stars, whereas most others gave it four and five stars. I'm thinking, you know, what is it that bothered the, the three-star reviewer? And let's say this person is, uh, you know, if you will, sound connoisseur. You know, someone said, well, it's because uh, it's, uh, you know, the base is, is not up to the standards I'm used to. And I may be thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm not in that group. You know, I'm not that particular about, you know, sound. Uh, I just need to be able to, to hear. Uh, so you, you look at the content of the reviews, and that tells you whether the, the review applies to you or not. Yeah. You just got to read them. You can't necessarily just go by how many stars. That's absolutely right. Uh, of course, if everyone gives it, you know, four and a half, five stars, you know, maybe you will spend less time reading reviews. But if you see different reviewers giving it very different, uh, you know, number of stars, yeah, I think that looking, you don't need to read all of the reviews, but looking at some of them, especially the negative ones, I think could be very helpful. How is this change affecting brand loyalty and, how, and, and, and the importance of a name brand? I think it, it, it changes it in a very significant way. Obviously, again, it's not happening overnight, but one of the main benefits of brands for consumers in the past was that it told you about the quality of the product. That was the best information you had. And if you had a prior, uh, previously a good experience with uh, a particular car, you say, well, I like this, this car, I like this brand, I'm going to buy it again. Uh, well, today, you don't have to rely on your previous experience with another product. You don't have to rely on your previous experience uh, with a brand or some general brand reputation. You can look at the information that is specific to this product that you want to buy. What that means is that brands in product categories where consumers do check reviews, the importance of brands and loyalty uh, is declining. Because they want quality, not necessarily a brand. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there are some categories. If you want to walk around with a Louis Vuitton uh, uh, you know, bag, that's, that's a different issue. That doesn't change if you like the status. So, there are, so brands will continue to have some uh, relevant functions. But if you're using brand name to figure out the quality of the product, that, in, in that regard, brands become less important. I'm speaking with Itmar Simonson. He is a professor of marketing at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, and his book is Absolute Value, 
what really influences customers in the age of nearly perfect information. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. So, Professor, are there some brands that have really taken a hit from the change you're talking about who who have really relied on being a name brand and and really riding on their name and now that ride is over take a look at the cell phone category i mean we we know what happened with uh uh nokia and uh, blackberry they used to be the leaders you know blackberry in the business sector and nokia among consumers and as Today, uh, they're very small brands relative to Samsung and Apple and so on. And at the same time, if you look at brands that were not known to consumers, like there is a brand uh, that was totally unknown named Asus. They're selling uh, computers really not under their own name. Uh, and then they decided, well, we'll make good product, and they started using their own name. Well, the word got around that these are good products, and people wrote positive reviews. And today, Asus is is one of the top, I forget, four or five uh, computer and uh, that is laptops and tablets in, in the world uh, because they delivered value. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, video streaming service. Uh, one of the leading brands is a company called Roku. And the reason that they've done so well is that they have so many very satisfied customers. That shows you that unknown brand names can do really well if they deliver quality. And more so than that used to be able, they used to be able to do because brand names would kind of overshadow. That is exactly correct. Yeah, I remember. I remember uh, Vizio TVs when you could only get them like at Costco, and I bought one years ago for a lot of money, and everybody thought I was nuts because nobody'd ever heard of Vizio TVs, and now they're considered a pretty good brand. That's an, 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 another excellent example. I mean, another change along those lines. It used to be that if you are if you are using a brand in one product category, like Samsung let's say, where in TVs, you couldn't enter, you couldn't start selling, using the same name, other products like washers or cell phones. Because people said, well, this brand, if you're, with your name, you're only expert in one category. But today, if you're selling good washers or good cell phones and reviewers agree, yeah, you can, you can, 
sell various products regardless of where you started. That's the old Jack Trout positioning argument that, you know, Levi's can sell Levi's, but they can't sell shoes because they tried and they failed because Levi's makes Levi's. That's an excellent point. And that is another very important change. I mean, I, I teach MBAs uh, here at Stanford, and we used to tell them uh, that the most important thing for marketers is to, pos- to decide how they want to position the product, how you want your brand to be perceived by consumers relative to competition in that specific category. But now this is changing. As long as you deliver real value to consumers, then you can be anything you want to be. Now, of course, it's important to point out not all consumers are taking advantage of that information. Not all consumers, even when they buy expensive products, like let's say you want to buy a camera, you know, some consumers would not take the time to read the reviews and look at expert reviews, even though it's just a click away. And if they don't do that, they still are susceptible to influences by things that really should not influence them. But, but things are cha- and have things changed enough, apparently, where this is really shifting how it's working, that we've hit critical mass here with the, a number of people that are doing it, even though some are not, that it is making a difference? Oh, it, it is already making a huge difference. Uh, and I think that uh, even though some marketers still believe that they can persuade you to buy anything, uh, this is, I think they're very quickly learning that that's not working as well as it used to. And this trend is not going away. You talked earlier about the problem of some fake reviews. It's certainly still a problem. But that doesn't mean that consumers will ignore reviews. I mean, the trend is there. That's happening. Temporarily, maybe there'll be some problems, and maybe here and there you find some products that use, uh, you know, that manipulate reviews somehow and are not, not getting caught. But if you look at the long run, and actually even in the relatively short run, that's where things are going. Consumers have better information sources than relying on, say, advertising or positioning uh, or the, you know, sales tactics. Of, of marketers. So, so what does that mean, though? I mean, if it, it almost sounds like your marketing is out of your hands, that it's really up now, it's up to the consumers to decide if you succeed or fail. That is absolutely right. I think now it's the marketer, especially, again, this, I'm talking about product categories where consumers do check reviews. But as the marketers, what you need to do is just Figure out what consumers are saying, what reviewers are saying, then figure out what's the problem and if they can correct it, address the problem quickly and see what happens then. And if the product consistently gets two uh, two or three reviews, you know, maybe you should just uh, try something completely different. So I think it's no longer true that marketers can convince you to, to buy uh, whatever they put their mind to. It's the consumers now are in a much stronger position. How important or how worried should marketers be about negative reviews? I mean, does it, uh, if you don't have any negative reviews, is that a red flag that there's something wrong? Because nobody's perfect. 
Well, you know, if you have 200 uh, positive reviews, nothing wrong with that. That's, you must have done a great job. If you have, uh, you know, uh, five reviews, all of them five stars, I think most consumers will not uh, be impressed by that and may be concerned that somehow those five reviews are not the most reliable. Uh, but uh, so I think that, you know, marketers should be concerned about negative reviews. I mean, if there are many negative reviews, uh, I think it's not a matter of trying to convince people that they are wrong or that the negative reviewers don't know what they're talking about. Instead, you should look at the problems with your product and try to be responsive. Right. Well, it's fascinating because I think most people have, I mean, I know I have and, and other people have always look at reviews now and when you buy something on Amazon because it's or wherever because it's just so easy to do and you check reviews on restaurants before you go there and, and they do have a, a, an impact on whether you buy or don't buy. That's, that's absolutely right. They have, you know, tremendous reviews. I mean, again, probably before you buy paper clips or soap, you're not checking reviews. So there's many product categories, some, you know, consume what we call consumer goods, you know, like many supermarket items, where the influence of this trend is not as significant, even though even for products like, say, diapers, many consumers do check reviews. In fact, if you go to, on, say, Amazon, for example, you'll, you'll be surprised by how many reviews there are of perfumes, of cosmetics products. You say, well, that's a matter of personal taste. Why? What do I care what other uh, what other consumers are saying? Well, it turns out that uh, there are lots of reviews, and apparently someone is paying attention. And it did kind of creep up slowly. This wasn't like a sudden change. It's like all, uh, it, this was kind of slow in coming, and it's just kind of crept up. Uh, that's exactly right. I think that, uh, uh, I mean, it is true that, uh, let's say, 15 years ago, if you read books and articles about what will happen on the Internet, I think many people didn't quite expect the great influence of reviews. But it did take, I'd say, 10, 15 years. I don't know if we call it long or short, but it's been, uh, and, and we're just at the beginning. And I think that uh, this has definitely been a, an extremely important uh, change. Well, it's interesting when you stop and think about it, or when I stop and think about it, I am much less likely to buy something just because of the name brand. And yet that, that shift happened so slowly, I'm not sure I barely noticed it. Itamar Simonson has been my guest. He is a professor of marketing at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, and he's author of the book Absolute Value, What Really Influences Customers in the Age of Nearly Perfect Information. This year, you don't need to reinvent yourself. Every day is a chance to build your future, and M1 Finance wants to help you keep building on what you started last year and the year before that. M1 is the finance super app where you can invest, borrow, save, and spend all in one place. More than half a million people already have accounts with M1. It's easy to set up your account, and M1 is designed to be personalized for your needs. Invest how you want with access to fractional shares and unmatched automation for free. You can borrow against your investments at super low rates, just 2 to 3.5%, and use this flexible portfolio line of credit for anything. 
like investing more into your portfolio, refinancing other loans, or funding large projects. M1 ties it together in a free digital account, so you can have more flexibility and smoother money movements. Just keep in mind, borrowing involves higher risks and rates may vary. Visit m1finance.com something to sign up and get $30 to invest. Remember, that's m1finance.com something. Terms and conditions apply. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before, and the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, and he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've always enjoyed those books and interviews of fascinating facts, things you never knew, like, you know, your odds of drowning are actually higher than your odds of meeting your mate on a blind date, which happens to be true. And there is a book about the odds of things happening to you. It's called The Book of Odds. And one of the authors is Amran Shapiro. He is my guest, and he and his co-author spent a huge amount of time and effort uncovering the odds of some, some of the strangest things that could happen to you. And so, Amram, there are so many things in this book that are fascinating. Let me just ask you to dive in and start talking about some of the things that you find most interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, you know, there, there's so many things. I think one of the things that are um, dangerous, you know, the odds of being struck by lightning are really one in a million or a little bit more than that. And actually, your odds of surviving a lightning strike are, are uh, one in 1.1 or 90%. And that, those are the same odds as the household has a Bible that a person is right-handed. Yeah, but that, well, I like those because I, I do think that there's a sense that people are worried about things that perceive as dangerous that probably aren't, and aren't as worried about things that perhaps are bigger dangers. Oh, I think you're quite right. I mean, the number one fear in the world is, uh, you know, for everybody, is snakes. And really, how many people do you know who have ever seen a snake actually bite anyone? And most of snake bites are not fatal. So one in two are afraid of snakes. But the real risk in the United States is that somebody will die of a venomous snake, a lizard bite, or one in 37.4 million you're much more likely to die of bad food 
360 times more likely to have bad food than a snake bite, and you're 12,000 times more likely to go to an ER because of a piece of jewelry. What? Say that again? I know. It's incredible. I mean, uh, they keep... um, they keep statistics on what brings people to the emergency room. And, you know, you would expect that it would always be, you know, a car accident and something. Of course, that's number one. But one in 167,000 go to an ER because of an accident involving duct tape. That's about the same as the accidents for leaf blowers. I don't even know how you hurt yourself with duct tape, but there you, but, but you, but you can um, the odds somebody will die from a, a shark attack in a year are one in 250 million. I mean, if you look at the, the things that have killed people and do regularly, escalators kill about two people a year, which I find incredible. But not too long ago, a man died in Seattle because his clothes got caught in the gears and, and he was strangled. And then people fall off the edge if they're drunk. So anyway, people die, you know, two people, more people, escalators kill more people than sharks. What are the odds that did you look at just the odds of of your likelihood of dying prematurely from something other than natural causes? Oh, that's a, that's such a such a good way of asking it. We we did look at sort of the reverse of that, which which is the odds of living to hundred. And and here's the thing that I think is a surprise, uh, or you know, not not obvious, and that is that the older you get, the odds of your living to hundred get better and better and better, so that when you're 90, your odds of living to 100 are better than when you're 30. Why would that be? Yeah, I mean, you see, that's what it does, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 I mean, a good, I mean, you know, the kind of odds we look for are the ones that sort of contain a story, and you go to yourself, well, that's not what I expected. Why would that be? And, I, and, and, and then, you, you know, and then you find yourself thinking about these things, and also, you find yourself remembering the, these odds, and, and, and they start to stick in the mind, and then they, they start to be helpful. What about some of the odds that look at the differences between, say, men and women? Here, here's the one that surprises everybody. Uh, men shower. The, the odds that a man showers daily are higher than the odds for a woman. One in 10 people are left-handed. More of these are men than women. One in 50 people are, have green or hazel eyes, but more of these are women than men. And here's one I, I, I think is fascinating. It's dangerous for a woman to marry a man much younger than herself. There was a study done with two million couples, and they found that women who marry a man seven to nine years her junior uh, increases her mortality risk in a year by 20%. And this was done in Denmark. So I, I assume these Danish men must be really high maintenance. So Amram, when I hear you say these things, like the thing about Danish men, I mean, it just makes you wonder, well, why would that be? Doesn't so, it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, to go back to your first question about, you know, why do this? The truth is that when you look at the simple fact, the, the smallest kind of fact you can find, a, a simple count, you know, how many are, are this, how many are that, you almost always find something that you never expected, and it's not what you really think or thought. Um, and, and that leads to interesting questions, and that may lead you to wonderful speculations. You know, the other areas that I think are fascinating are what people believe in, and uh, if we have time for it, what people lie about. You know, uh, one in three Americans believe in UFOs, and one in six say they've seen one. 
Um, this one's really uh, shocking, I think. Or, um, but one in six believe that the U.S. government participated in or didn't stop when it could have the 9-11 attacks. One in eight believe the U.S. government had a hand in the Kennedy assassination. One in 12 believe there's a chance Elvis is alive. And here's my favorite. One in 17 believe the Apollo moon landing was faked. Wow. Now these are our fellow these are our fellow citizens, you know, and we you know we 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 attribute to them a, a certain I don't know shared world view, but there are an awful lot of people who believe that the world is really uh, uh, laced with conspiracies. There must be something in human nature that you know when, where there's a vacuum, you know, conspiracy fills the void. I agree with you. I agree with you, and and, and I always I remember reading about. You know these kind of conspiracy theories in in countries that didn't have free presses. But when you have a free press, I would expect less of this. I, I think the other thing I find really fascinating is the, is the comparison between what people say they do, or what people really are, and and what they say they are. Um, and you know, <laughs> it's amazing, especially on the internet, as just how much lying we do. Um, there's a landmark study that says one in 2.5 people will tell at least one lie a day, and it goes up to like 20. I mean, I, I wouldn't have time to tell 20 lies in a day, but some people do it. One in 3.5 of us will lie about being sick in order to get a day off. And for all those people going on to Match.com and eHarmony and OkCupid, the folks online, both men and women, lie about their age, uh, about their weight, about their height. And uh, this is a shocker. 1.8 a lie about their marital status. Well, wait, wait. 1.8 of what? Oh, you mean one in 1.8 people? One, one in 1.8 people lie about their marital status? Yeah, 1.8. I mean, we're talking about more than half. Um, and that's uh, both men and women. So, I mean, it, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, like, everything has a surface, but if you look behind the surface and you just say, okay, behind there are people telling the truth or lies, let me just count them. And if you do, you know, you often find you encounter something you didn't expect. And they lead you to um, a story, and they lead you to thinking about, um, about uh, human beings and what they're like and what you're like. And, and also, um, you find that you remember the number. I mean, for example, the odds that nobody will come to pick up the cremated remains of a family member are one in a hundred. Why did they do that? I mean, did they hate him? Really, there was no subject area where we didn't find stuff like that. How about something in sports? I imagine sports would be ripe for this kind of thing. You know, here's one that I found surprising. We compared uh, injuries in sports, and I, w I always expected ice hockey would be right at the top. And it turns out that ice hockey is safer. The odds that uh, uh, an ice hockey player will, will end up going to an emergency room during a year are 1 in 119. Uh, when you compare that to baseball, it's 1 in 89, soccer 1 in 175, uh, safer than football, basketball. And again, uh, that wasn't what I expected. Well, pretty much everything you've said in this conversation isn't what I expected. Amran Shapiro has been my guest. He is one of the authors of the book, The Book of Odds, From Lightning Strikes to Love at First Sight, The Odds of Everyday Life. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. 
You've probably heard that you shouldn't refreeze food, that freezing it once is okay, but after it thaws out, you shouldn't freeze it again. But why? Well, according to Bon Appetit magazine, the reason is twofold. First, in terms of taste, repeated freezing and thawing can turn your meal into mush due to the nature of dihydrogen monoxide, which is one weird molecule, Water actually expands as it freezes, and that can rupture the cell walls of your meat and vegetables, and that can make them very unappealingly mushy. In terms of food safety, each time you thaw it out, it introduces new bacteria. Though freezing can halt bacterial growth, it doesn't necessarily kill every single type of bacteria. So for those two reasons, it is best to limit your thawings to one. And that is Something You Should Know. And that wraps up this weekend edition of Something You Should Know. Remember to hit the share button and share this episode with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.